0: Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day For they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves. Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly, of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own simple desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith, pray in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time, and now, and forever, amen.
1: What are we to do? when Little Red Riding Hood comes to church. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with the children's nursery story. I'm told that the Grimm's fairy tale is considerably more gruesome than the somewhat tamed version that I was raised on, but small girl is sent to visit grandma, travels to grandma's cottage through the woods. Small girl is intercepted by wolf. Wolf makes casual inquiries. Wolf races on ahead to Grandma's cottage. This is where it gets a little eccentric. Wolf swallows Grandma whole. Wolf disguises self as Grandma in Grandma's bed. Small girl arrives. What big eyes you have, Grandma. All the better to see you with. But but what do we do when Grimm's fairy tale takes place before us in the Church of Christ? The letter we're studying today is by Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. You can see that from the introduction. James was Jesus's brother. Jude is James's brother, most likely the fourth of Jesus's brothers, named in Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus is visited by his brothers and sisters. We're going to zoom in really on one verse. We'll look at three others, but primarily one verse, verse four. And if you look at verse 4, you can see that Jude describes Jesus as our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. You have to say it's quite something for Jesus' brothers to have written a letter referring to Jesus as our only Master and Lord. Try persuading your brother that that's your identity. But we can see from the very earliest point in the letter that Jude has wanted to write a different letter Verse 3, I was, although I was eager, very eager, to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. So we might call this the letter that never wanted to be written. But Jude considers he has to write it, And the reason is there in verse four. So let's look at the verse. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ, so so what are we to do then when Little Red Riding Hood comes to church? Please, if you've come to church today in a red coat with a hood on, you know this is not a personal kind of assault on your clothing. Um, It is rather when the essence of Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf, enters. What are we to do when certain people creep in unnoticed? The letter is 25 verses long. There is far, far too much in the letter for us to take over just one Sunday morning. And in the new year, at the four and six o'clock congregations, I'm planning to take the whole letter over four weeks. So this is something of a trailer. And do consider attending at the four or the six, as well as on Sunday morning. Back in the day, lots of people used to come to the six o'clock from the Sunday morning congregation. It was always a great encouragement and wonderful to see people there. I've called this an Advent sermon because we're in the season of Advent and you may be aware that Advent in the church calendar is meant to be about remembering the return of Jesus Christ. Advent is about God's coming judgment. But the striking thing about this letter is the way in which Jude deploys the doctrine of the return of Jesus for the church. Let's get into our one verse, uh, two points. Secret agents do infiltrate the church, don't be naive. God will deal with secret agents, don't panic. So secret agents infiltrate. Do you know there are, I think, five, six sections of this short letter in which Jude details the activity and the appearance of certain people, who he mentions in verse four, for certain people, and then on a number of other occasions, who have crept in unnoticed. But the suggestion here is that they came in initially without anybody spotting them. The phrase to creep in unnoticed translates a word that speaks of settling in alongside, entering by stealth, slipping in by the side door. One translation has it, they came in stealthily, they crept in unawares. And in verse 12, Jude speaks of these individuals as hidden reefs, that's a nautical term, underwater rock, at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear, So these certain people have really settled in, and these certain people are part of the furniture, and these certain people are well-known, well-liked, well-established, and well-respected even. Perhaps they even wear a dog collar. Maybe they're a school chaplain or a university chaplain. Perhaps they lead a church or have been given preferment in the church. They may even lead a small group. But the detail of these certain people's activity is given in two statements at the end of verse 4. So, at the end of the verse, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Sensuality and pluralism, or sensuality and idolatry sensuality. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. The word sensuality is unbridled lust or outrageous conduct. It carries sexual overtones. In a parallel passage in 2 Peter, Peter says, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So here, their lustful and sexually unrestrained sensual behavior is promoted as they pervert the grace of God. Now, is it that they themselves are sexually unrestrained? Well, it could be, in verse 12, he talks about them looking after themselves, and verse 16, about them following their own sinful desire. Or is it that they promote lack of sexual restraint in the congregation? Whichever, it seems that whilst they crept in unnoticed, Now, we've suddenly woken up to them. But the phrase, pervert the grace of God, is interesting. It suggests that they talked about God, and they talked about the gospel of God. They talked about grace. They used the same language as the true church. They spoke of the same things as the true church and that's what made them so hard to spot. They perverted the grace of God. God is love, they would say. God loves us all, they would say. God offers free forgiveness, they would say. Come to God in the name of Jesus, and God's free forgiveness comes free of charge, they would say. Tick, 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 tick. Don't worry about sin then, they would say. Don't bother with change. They would say, come to God in the name of Jesus. Keep on living with no alteration, they would say. God is love, they would say. Personally, I find the most helpful commentary on this letter is written by Michael Green. He puts it like this. They are treating the fact that God graciously accepts sinners as an excuse for flagrant, shameless sin. They accepted the indicative of pardon and forgot the imperative of holiness. That's a really good way of putting it. They've set one attribute of God over against another attribute of God. God's free forgiveness, his grace, over against God's absolute purity, his holiness. Chris Green, in his commentary, also really useful, total freedom today on the basis of total forgiveness tomorrow. Because God forgives sin, anything goes. Now, I was going to give this aspect of the insurgents the title, cheap grace. But then I saw the final line. They deny our only master and lord Jesus Christ, not so much cheap grace as idolatrous grace, pluralism. That is, their ungodliness works itself out not only in their behavior, but also in their teaching. You might even argue that their teaching drove their ungodliness and that their ungodliness fed their idolatry, that the one fed the other Believe wrongly and we will live wrongly. Live wrongly and we will want to believe wrongly in order to justify our life. Think crookedly, we will act crookedly. Act crookedly, you'll want to think crookedly. And these insurgents, they deny our only master and sovereign, Jesus Christ. So they might say something like this, you know, Jesus was a wonderful man. He showed us so many good things. I love the Sermon on the Mount. Much of what he says is really good. But, but, but really, we live in a different age now. Times have changed. There are other voices, each to his own. You have your truth, I have mine. Let's walk together in love and faith regardless. There are many ways of living So as I say, did their wrong thinking lead to wrong living, or did their wrong living feed their wrong thinking? Yes. Both appear to take place simultaneously. Neither appear to phase Jude. Both were anticipated long ago. Neither is anything new. And in the Bible, idolatry always leads to license, and license leads to increased idolatry. You can think of a number of examples, I'm sure. If I asked you to shout out, can you think of examples in the Bible where idolatry leads to sexual immorality? We would have many. Israel and the golden calf, they rose up to play. The word is for an orgy. Numbers, Balaam and Balak, and the infiltration of false understanding, they committed sexual immorality on the plain. Solomon and his harem. Actually, when you pause to think about it, it has to be so. For once we deny the reality of an objective, absolute divinity, one true God who comes from outside and stands above all, all we're left with is the subjective ideas of man. Absence of revelation leads only to speculation. And because we're now speculating and effectively making it up as we go along with ideas taken only from within the closed system, no objective truth, no absolute only master and Lord, well, now we're making it up, well, does it work? Does it feel good? Does it appear right to me? How do I feel? And so, well, it feels good to me, I should do it. I, I sense that I should behave this way, I'll behave that way. I, I really, really love her. I couldn't help myself. Should it then surprise us that in the church today, all across the Western world, issues of shameful sexual license abound? Not at all. In the 60s, 70s, 80s, a general erosion of truth concerning the person of Jesus. When I was at seminary in Cambridge, there was a whole school of thought Jesus was just a man, he was really, really inspired. But you know, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he acted wonderfully, but you know, he was just a man, he was a prophet. And, and there are other voices. But the wrong thinking of the 70s and 80s flowers into the wrong living of the noughties and the 2020s, of course. Wrong thinking, wrong living. And yet the same language is spoken. They pervert the grace of God. Uh, They're still part of the same organization. In some cases, they've taken it over. The secret insurgency becomes rampant. Well, what to do? I mean, what to do? And I think verse four at least begins with an initial uh, to do. Actually, it's to realize to begin with, and you'll have to come back in the new year in the evening if you're going to hear what actually to do. But initially, it's to realize. So God will deal with secret agents in his church. Don't panic as I say, a number of times, these people, certain people, these people, these people, these people, but each these people is followed by a piece on judgment in the central part of the letter. So God will deal with secret insurgents in the church. And verse five, verse six, and verse seven, he will destroy them in their unbelief. He will overthrow them in their arrogance. He will punish them for their immorality. First destruction, verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that the Lord, you see the footnote there, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. Now, this is a general statement about the place in history in which we now find ourselves using... God's rescue of his people out of Egypt as a model and an example. God saved his people from the grip of Pharaoh. God brought them out of Egypt with tremendous supernatural acts. They all witnessed it. They came through the Red Sea. Uh, They were saved at the Passover. They were fed miraculously in the desert. God promised them a new land. But some of those who had experienced all these extraordinary things rejected the salvation that had been given to them, and God destroyed those who rebelled against him in the desert. An entire generation perished, and only Joshua and Caleb made it into the promised land. And so what Jude is doing quite brilliantly is reminding his reader that we also live between two fixed points the fixed point of God's salvation in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection and the fixed point of his return in judgment. We're in an analogous situation. And he's speaking about the secret insurgents. Please don't be surprised at them. There have always been unbelievers, if you like, in the church. That's been going on for millennia. Nothing new under the sun. And God is more than able to deal with such things. They're playing with fire They will be destroyed. Here, I think, is the first surprise of Advent. You know, I'm told one of our broadsheets has published an Advent calendar, each door of which, when open, provides information of who is on strike today. (laughs) Basically, it appears everybody in Great Britain has decided to take December off. I think it's rather a good idea. But open the Advent calendar door on Jude's Advent calendar, And it simply says, Jesus is coming in judgment. Don't panic. The doctrine of God's judgment is being used to encourage the saints. Certain people crept in unnoticed. They perverted the grace of God into sensuality. They deny our only Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Oh, long ago, they were designated for this judgment. It should not surprise us one little bit. To find people say, do you know, I was on the executive committee of our University Christian Union. Oh yeah, yeah, that's been going on. And now I'm teaching something complete. I've moved on. Or I was once a member of a leading evangelical church. That's where I went forward at a great mission. But do you know, I've come to see that. Or I was a ministry trainee, you know, at such and such a place. But I've slightly changed my view. Verse 6 is a little more tricky precisely what Jude is referring to. We can't be absolutely sure. Just let's read it. The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. It could be referring to passages in Ezekiel and Isaiah, possibly. More likely, I think, Angelic beings in Genesis 6, who rose up against God in the early chapters of Genesis, defied his authority by seeking to intermingle with humans. If that is the case, then Jude's tactic is absolutely brilliant. He's begun with a general statement about where we live in God's timing between salvation and final judgment. He's then deployed a perfect example of what happens when people raise themselves up against the authority of God, seeking to upset themselves as an authority or to deny his authority. And that is precisely what these false teachers are doing. Verse 8, they reject authority. Verse 16, they are loud-mouthed boasters. And Jude is reminding us from the pages of the Old Testament that God is perfectly able to deal with those who step up to challenge him. And where people act in an idolatrous manner, placing their own take on what God perhaps ought to have said if he were a little more understanding of the 21st century, then God is perfectly able to deal with them. Don't panic. And, you know, it can be really deeply unsettling, can't it, in the Western denominations to have no less than bishops and archbishops challenging the faith once for all delivered to the saints. You begin to think to yourself, what on earth is going on? Don't panic. This has been going on since the beginning, and even the angels, and God is perfectly able to deal with it. He will destroy, verse 5, he will judge. Verse 7, he will punish. Another perfectly chosen illustration Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Striking that each of these judgments are temporal, Jude is absolutely clear that there is a final judgment to come which he speaks of later in the letter, behold the Lord came with 10,000 of his angels. He's speaking of the coming of Jesus Christ. Don't panic, God will return in judgment. He has set a day when he will judge the world by the man he's appointed, and he's given evidence of this final judgment by raising Jesus from the dead. It is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. That's what Christians Believe, we live between these two fixed points. But God's judgment in these three instances is a temporal judgment. It's very striking, isn't it? As he overthrows these and then holds them, awaiting the final day. And the example of Sodom and Gomorrah is perfectly chosen for those who've given themselves over to sensuality. Because the one thing Sodom and Gomorrah are famous for, infamous, is sexual immorality. Now, attempts have been made to remove any suggestion of sexual impropriety from the text of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. And people have sought to suggest that the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah was one of failure of proper hospitality. Really, such readings are complete distortions of the text. And you have to say laughable. No, the people in chapter 19 of Genesis gathered around the house of Lot and demanded that the visitors be sent out so that they might know them. And in the book of Genesis, to know someone is to have sexual intercourse with them. So Adam knew Eve and she conceived. Uh, Was it that he was particularly hospitable to Eve? I think not. And people have tried to suggest that the unnatural desire being condemned in verse 7 of uh, Jude refers to desire that is against what the person themselves truly feels. That is, an heterosexual person pursuing homosexual desire or vice versa. Once again, that simply doesn't work. The unnatural desire refers to a desire that is against the created physiological order of male and female, wherever it occurs in the Bible, the two distinct sexes that God created. So it is possible, isn't it, to be disturbed when those who once crept in unnoticed begin to show their true colors. And I suspect that's what's happened. This is a late letter. And here is Jude writing to a church that had, without doing due diligence, kind of allowed in people to exercise eventually positions of quite some authority. And now they find themselves, wow, is that what they really think? We hadn't twigged. Is is that how they're seeking to behave? Is that the conduct they're actually seeking to promote? Can you believe it? That's the change they're seeking. And Jude says, oh dear, don't be surprised. God isn't. Don't panic. God doesn't. We need to be clear. We're all sexual sinners here in this building. Every single individual But when such gross sensuality has entered into the church, that the acceptance of heterosexual or homosexual sin has become part of the teaching of many churches, don't panic. God is able to deal with it. He will act in judgment. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, I don't know about you, but I find this immensely reassuring. It may not be quite what you were expecting on an Advent sermon. We tend to think our present situation in the Western denominations with you know less than 50%, I should think we've been less than 50% of genuine Christians in Britain for decades. Big sp- surprise, but we tend to be oh, terribly worried. Oh, God isn't surprised. It's not a one-off, it's been going on <laughs> since Genesis in the earliest chapters. I began with Little Red Riding Hood. I was forbidden from telling bedtime stories to my children. I used to make up the stories, and they almost invariably involved the beast of Bodmin Moor and the Giant's Hedge. The Giant's Hedge is a a feature in um, the part of the world where I'd be telling the stories, and apparently a giant ran from Lerrin to Lou back in the day, and his tail. Well, it might have been the devil, dragged behind him and, and, and dug an enormous channel and you can go and visit it if you want, I could show it to you, but uh, the beast of one invariably broke into the children's bedrooms and snatched a child and dragged the child off to the beast, to, to, to the giant's hedge where he had his lair and um, it was pointed out by a particular authority in my household that uh, perhaps the reason the children were still awake at two o'clock calling for their their mother had something to do with slightly over-eccentric bedtime stories, so we had to edit. But it is possible, isn't it, when we come across Little Red Riding Hood in the church to panic. And Jude, I think, is written, at least in part, that we should not. He does want us to contend... And he tells us how to contend, but that's for after Christmas. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you are able to keep us from stumbling and present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. And so we pray that you would guard us, keep us, And comfort us with the wonderful truth of coming
0: judgment. In Jesus' name, amen.